And I said some of this this morning, but let me just say again what a blessing it has been for me to be here. And uh, anytime you go to a new place, you're always a little extra nervous and uh, you just don't ever know. You don't ever know what you're uh, going into. You don't know uh, how it's going to go. And there's just always the nerves. Anytime you're preaching, it's a it's an eternal thing. So there's always those nerves. And then coming into a new place, there are nerves. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that you go to be a blessing wherever you go to minister. You're going to try and be a blessing. I'm sure when the ensemble goes to the summit, they, they get asked to sing their heart's desire is, Lord, that we might lift you up and that we might be a blessing to the people. So you go to be a blessing, but listen, what happens is that some places, and I'm not, this is not an attack, and this is not, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. I'm just saying that some places you go, Brother Joey, it's a labor. While you're there, you can tell, I've been sent here to try to be a blessing. These folks need a blessing, and it's a labor while you're doing it. But then there are other places you go to be a blessing and it's not a labor at all. As a matter of fact, you're getting all the blessings while you're there. And hopefully you're being a blessing, but you're getting a blessing and being refreshed. And that's the way it's been this weekend for me. I've been refreshed to be here and to be in the singing. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, he was, uh, you were right. You stirred me up pretty good there at the end of that song, man. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to know what Jesus did for us. And listen, maybe some of you have forgotten what you are. And I'm going to tell you what we are. We're a bunch of sinners saved by grace. I just knocked a book over right here. Is there a reason this book is hiding in front of me down here? Just throw it. I'm just going to gently walk it over here. All right. Brother Rob may come charging out of the bullpen up here and, and attack me if I throw his book. I, I'm not sure why it was sitting there, but it bothered me. Listen, I, I, I just get nervous every time I get around stairs. I fell down the stairs at our church one time. Have any of y'all seen the video? It's been all the way here. I'll tell you that. It's been all the way to Canada because uh, I was standing on the next to the bottom step. We had had a snowy day. If it snows in the south, nobody goes anywhere, all right? And it don't have to snow, but just a little, and everybody stays home. So we had a little snow. Everybody had stayed home. So we just had people in two sections, and so we just had a little pulpit down there, and the guy was leading singing, and I was standing. I think we have about four or five stairs. I was on the next to the bottom stair, and I've already told you, those that have been here, that I'm easily distracted. And so we're singing the congregational song, and I see a young man on the front row who pastors a little church locally, and his church had canceled because of the snow. He had come and attended our service that night, and I just thought to myself, well, I need to go speak to him right during the congregational singing. Go speak to him. So I took that step. Now I'm thinking I'm on the floor, except I wasn't on the floor yet. So when I took that next step, oh, I was gone. Had my songbook in my hand. I bounced up, though. I handled it really good. You can look it up. I bounced up and I almost caught the songbook. I did miss that. Picked it up and I just stepped up on the front pew and threw my hands up and shouted. Now, I mean, what are you going to do? You just got to own it. My daughter was sitting on about the fourth row. If you see the video, you'll see a girl go like this. Oh, she's so embarrassed. And so the song leader, buddy, you talk about dedicated. He didn't stop. He was just kept singing like he didn't see me flailing around on the ground. The guys on the front row, not one of them leaned over to check and see if I was okay. They were all just going to go right on. I said, stop, stop, stop. We got to stop. I mean, everybody was laughing. You can't just keep singing. And so I turned and said, there's another step right there. And everybody laughed and we dealt with it for a minute. And then we went on, had church, had a good time. By the end of the service, one of our preacher boys had got on his phone, on the live stream, and he had screenshot a picture of my leg straight up and the songbook is right above my leg. And he had posted it online right after the service. So I, I said, we've got to get ahead of this. We got the video. We put it out. And we just laughed about it. I got a, I got a friend of mine, a C.T. Townsend, put it on his Facebook page the next day. And like 16,000 people seen it in just a day or two. So I started getting calls. I got a call from an elderly lady, sister, brother, that hadn't been in there forever. And uh, this sister had been sick, hadn't been at church. I got a call from her. I thought, oh, something's bad wrong. And she said, I saw you fail. Are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Thank you for checking. Why don't you come to church sometime? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. 
I just thanked her for calling. Then I was in way upstate New York. Samson Ryman holds a camp way upstate, almost in Canada. And I was up there preaching and there was a teenage boy sitting there and he's kind of all by himself. And I just thought, I'm going to speak to this boy. Looks like maybe doesn't have a lot of friends. I'm going to reach out to him. And I said, how you doing, buddy? And he said, oh, I'm doing fine. He had on a New York Yankee shirt. And I know that grieves you, preacher. So just stay, <laughs> stay with the story. He had on a Yankee shirt. And I said, oh, are you a Yankees fan? Or is that just a nice shirt? And he looked down and he goes, oh, no, I'm a Toronto fan. He said, I, I said, Toronto? Oh, yeah. He said, yeah, I'm from Toronto. I said, Canada. He said, yeah. Then he said, are you Brother Shirley? And I thought, yeah. All the way in Canada, they know Brother Shirley. You know, that's what your pride says. Before I could even hardly think that, he said, you're the guy that fell down the stairs, aren't you? <laughs> I said, I said, just sit here by yourself, punk. I walked off. And uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. But it's got all the way up here, so I get a little nervous. So when that book fell on my foot right there, I just about had a spell right here. Not the good kind either. First Kings chapter 16. Now, I've got a clock right here, and I'm going to try to be careful of it. And uh, I know that you've been in church all weekend. <clears throat> and we've talked a lot about looking back. And boy, what a video. Man, that thing was a blessing. And uh, God's faithfulness to this place is an encouragement to my heart. But I want, to, I want to give you a challenge tonight. I want you to stay with me to the end, and I'll make it a little bit personal right at the end. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Aren't you glad we got the word of God? Say amen. In the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 20 and 2 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. That's a pretty strong statement, by the way. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. Now look at this statement. Ahab did more to, what's that next word? Provoke. Everybody say provoke. And, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask you now that you would help me be filled with the Spirit as I try and uh, give this thought tonight and share this challenge. I thank you for this church. It's been a blessing to me this weekend. And I mean that. I'm sure that Brother Joey and Miss Rebecca would say the same. Lord, it's just been refreshing to be here and be a part of the worship and, and just see the hand of God on this place. So I pray now you'd use me to be a blessing back to them again. Lord, I ask you to help me. Fill me with the Spirit. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... I want to submit to you here at the beginning of the message that there are times that God looks down from heaven at what is going on on this earth and is provoked to show himself. We looked at that word. We'll talk about it again in just a minute. But I believe that there are times when he looks down and he sees that people have forgotten who he is and what he is and that he has moved in himself to remind people from time to time about who he is. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10, The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now some people uh, describe that verse there as a man rolling up his sleeves to get to work. The Bible says the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And I've heard uh, old preachers use that text talk about God's getting ready to do something like he's rolling up his sleeves to get ready to go to work. But I want to submit to you that, that maybe it's, uh, it's more like this. It's maybe that God flexes sometimes. 
But maybe sometimes God makes bare. Now notice the text said he makes bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. It's something that he is wanting everybody to see. I believe that there are times he is provoked to remind people of his power. Have you ever, have you ever seen a young guy that started working out and he got a little bit of muscle on himself and, and he knows he does? Shake your head if you know what I mean by that. He's got a little bigger and he knows he does and just all the time he walks around like he's just worked out. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. He just walks around like this all the time. It's like his arms won't even go down anymore. And I know there are weightlifters that are that big, but probably not you, sir. All right, put your arms down. And, uh, you know, they, they reach to get their billfold like this. Reach with this arm over to this pocket so they can flick. They're just trying to show people how big they are. You know, that's pride in man, but it's not pride in God. Because God is worthy of all praise. And there are times that God wants people to remember who he is. I'll show you that in the word of God. You think about little David and that story there in 1 Samuel 17. Stay here. We're going to look in 1 Kings. But in 1 Samuel 17, the story of little David fighting Goliath. You know, the Bible repeatedly used the word there about Goliath. It used the word defied. It said Goliath defied the armies of Israel. And in doing so, he was defying the God of Israel. Now that word defied, if you look it up in the 1828 dictionary, it means this, to dare, to provoke, to combat or strife by appealing to the courage of another. You know what it's like? It's like the big guy poking the chest of the little guy as if to say, hey, why don't you do something? Are you afraid? Hey, what's the matter? And it's provoking to action. That's what the word defy means. That's what Goliath was doing over and over. He was defying the people of God and by doing so, he was defying the God of the people. And so in that particular situation, our God looks down and he sees this taking place. And, and listen, so God decides to put it in the heart of a little shepherd boy. Instead of sending one of the great leaders of the, the, uh, the army there, he decides to put it in the heart of a little shepherd boy and send him out to kill this giant with just a sling and a few rocks. And he sends him out there for this confrontation. Now, when you read the verses, it becomes very clear what God is doing. It's not just David. This is a God thing. In verse 45 and 46 of that text, listen to what it says. Then said David to the Philistine, thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. Now notice that. The Bible says right there that Goliath had defied God. The Goliath had provoked God to action as if he was poking him in the chest saying, well, if you're God, why don't you do something? David said, you have defied God. Now listen to what little David says. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. I like this. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. Have you ever got so excited you said something and right after it you thought, I don't know if I should have said that. Little David don't even have a sword. Can you imagine he's running down through there? He said, he said God's going to give you to me. I'm going I'm to kill you. I'm going to cut your head off. Yeah, I'm going to cut your head off. I don't really know how, but I'm gonna, I've done said it now. Little David said, I'm going to take your head from thee. And listen, I will give thee the carcasses, give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air to the wild beasts of the earth. Now here it is. Here's why he's going to do all of that. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. See, God was working this out. Goliath had defied God. He had provoked God. 
to action as if to say, hey, if your God is real, then why don't he do something? Why don't he send one man out here and send one man to take care of me? And if one man can defeat me, then we'll be your servants. And God heard that. From heaven, God was provoked to do something. And the whole purpose of this event right here is to show the world that there's a God in Israel. Remember that verse, the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. Isn't it interesting here that it just says that he's not just going to show Israel. Israel, but he's going to show the whole earth that there's a God in Israel. And God is provoked in 1 Samuel 17 to flex a little bit in front of the eyes of people so that they might know that he is real and that he is a mighty God. See, if one of Israel's great warriors, Saul himself, was head and shoulders above everybody else, Saul was a big man. If one of Israel's great soldiers would have come down there with their sword and with their great skill and would have chopped Goliath down to size, then maybe, maybe people would have been praising the soldier. Maybe people would have said, wow, what a great warrior. Look how strong he is and look how skilled he is. But see, God didn't want any warrior to get the glory on this day. He had been provoked. And so he wanted to make sure everybody knew this is a God thing. I'm gonna take a little boy with a sling and a stone and we're gonna kill this giant and the world will know that there's a God in Israel. He was flexing. God was making bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations so the ends of the earth could see the salvation of our God. He was showing the world who he was. In our text, God's going to do this again. God's about to flex again here. Ahab has taken the throne and in direct disobedience to the law of God, he's married a woman who worshiped other gods, worshiped Baal, and he has joined her in leading the nation into that idolatrous worship of Baal. We can see in verse 33 very clearly that God is about to get involved when the Bible says, and we looked at it earlier, Ahab made a grove and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. God looks down and he says, all right, they have forgotten who I am. He's led the whole nation into worshiping Baal. They have forgotten me. And so God is provoked right here to, to remind his people who he is. And so in chapter 16, what we see is we see the enemy's provocation. We see the enemy provoking the very heart of God. In verses in chapter 17 and 18, what we're going to see is the everlasting's retaliation. We're going to see God flex and remind people who he is. First of all, in chapter 17, we see him set up the stage. See, as the hearts of the people of Israel have been turned more and more away from God, he begins to set some things in order so that he can show himself in a powerful way. First of all, he stops the rain. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. He stops the rain. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. In verse 7, And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. God is putting some things in place to get everybody's attention so that he can once again show himself mighty. He can make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nation. He's going to flex again and remind the people of God just who he is. So he stops the rain. Not only that, but then he begins to establish a reputation. Elijah shows up in chapter 17, verse 1. And boy, by the end of the chapter, he is already developing a reputation as the man of God. Verse 24 of chapter 17 says, the woman said to Elijah, and he has raised her son from the dead, said, uh, now by this I know thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So word begins to spread about this new prophet of God that's come on the scene. It begins to spread, and we know this because in the next chapter, uh, uh, 
Elijah meets Ahab, and when he meets the king, or meets Obadiah, which first of all, he's the governor of Ahab's house, and when he meets him, the Bible said in chapter 18, verse 7, it says that as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face and said, Art thou that my Lord Elijah? And so word had already spread about this prophet. God was setting up the stage for his big moment when he was going to remind the world who he was. He stopped the rain. He's establishing a reputation for his prophet. Later when Elijah does confront King Ahab, the Bible said in verse 17, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, art thou he that troubleth Israel? And listen, Elijah of course answered and said, listen, I'm not the problem, you're the problem. And God has sent me to remind you of that. Now all of this is just God setting up the stage that he might show himself again. When we get to chapter 18, we see him, he's already set up the stage in chapter 18, we see him roll up his sleeves. God's about to flex. He's about to make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the people. And the Bible says here in verse 1, look at it with me. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And so it begins. He stopped the rain for these three years. He's got the prophet on the scene doing miracles. Word is spreading. And now God says it's time. He's been provoked. Remember, he was provoked more by Ahab than anybody before him. And God said, it's time. You go tell Ahab that I'm going to send the rain. Here's what happens in this chapter. Three things happen that help reestablish the power and the preeminence of our God. The fire falls and then the prophets fall and then the raindrops fall. Let's look at those three very quickly. In chapter 18, verse 38, I want you to see the fire fall. Most of you know the contest. Uh, Elijah shows up and he talks to Ahab and he says, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you call all the prophets of Baal and get them all together and then I'll show up. And he, and he says to the people, how long halt you between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. But if Baal be God, serve him. And the people answer not a word. Now I'm going to submit to you also, I don't think these people, I, I give them a pass a little bit. I believe they were sincerely deceived. Listen, you'll notice they did not say, oh, come on, Elijah, we don't believe like that anymore. They didn't say that. They didn't say, oh, come on, Elijah, that's the old ways. We got a new leader now, and he leads us to serve this other guy. We like, they didn't say any of that. As a matter of fact, they just didn't say anything. I believe that they had been deceived by this king. See, the kings had often led in worship. David led in much worship. He established a lot of the worship. And so now they've got a new king and he's not leading in the worship of the Lord. He's leading in this worship of Baal. And the people are probably confused. Well, well what are we supposed to do? We've always worshiped God. And now, now our king and our queen, they want us to worship this. And so Elijah shows up and says, hey, if you're on the Lord's side, stand over here. If you're on Baal's side. And they don't say either one. And so Elijah says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we have this contest? And we'll just have sacrifices and the prophets of Baal can call out to their God. And then I'll pray and call out to our God. And he says, and the God that answers by fire will know that he's God. And you know, the people immediately said, we like that. They said, yes, that's a good idea. You know why? I believe they wanted to know the truth. And I believe they thought to themselves, buddy, that'll show us. I mean, if one of these gods can answer by fire, we'll know they're the one. And so Elijah prays. And in verse 38, look at it with me. He prays and the fire falls. The fire of the Lord fell. It consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And he had, of course, dug a trench around it and poured barrels upon barrels of water to try to further prove the power of God. And in this miracle, I call this the revelation. 
revelation because in this miracle, God revealed himself to the people as the one true God. If you look back in verse 23 and 24, that had been the contest. He said, let them give us two bullocks. And he says, we'll lay on the wood, we'll put no fire. Verse 24, call ye on the name of your gods. I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. I want to say something to you. When the fire falls, the people keep their word. Look at chapter 18, verse 39. It says the fire fell in verse 38. And when all the people saw it. Now let's just stop for a minute. When they saw what? When they saw the fire. Not when they saw the prophet or heard his prayer. It wasn't about the prophet. It was about God. And when they saw this fire fall from heaven, and it didn't just fall, but it cleaned up all the mess that was there, all the water, all the ash, all the blood. It licked it all up and cleaned it all up. And the Bible says, buddy, when they saw that, look at it again. It said they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Listen to me now. They did what they said. They said, you have that contest and the one that answers by fire will know he's the real God. God answers by fire and they begin immediately to worship the very God of heaven. You know why? He started to flex here in front of them. He reminded them of his power. He reminded them of who he is. And this is the revelation. They're not praising the prophet. It's all about God, but God's not done. The fire falls. And then secondly, I want you to see verse 39 and 40, the prophets fall. They said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Verse 40, Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Uh, this, the fire falling, that was the revelation. God revealing himself as God to the people. Listen, the prophets falling here, this is the revival. You say, why do you call it that? This is the crowd back in verse 21 that wouldn't say a word. This is the crowd that Elijah said, hey, where do you stand? Is it God or is it Baal? And they wouldn't say a word. And now, listen, now they're not only shouting, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God, but they have gotten up off their seats and got into the battle and they're helping to remove these prophets of Baal. I'd call that revival. They're stirred up. They go from shouting to slaying in just a matter of minutes. By the way, I believe God can still send revival. My heart gets stirred here in the testimony of the revival here not very many years ago with Brother Calvin Allen and all that went on in that meeting. Hey, we think God can still do that. I don't think COVID put God out of business. I don't think the last day scares God. He knew they were coming. He's still the same yesterday and today and forever. And listen, he alone knows exactly how much time we have left and it is still not his will that any should perish. I believe he wants people saved more than he's ever wanted it before. God can still send revival. The fire falls in Revelation. We see then the prophets fall, the revival. Then I want you to see something else. We don't often think about this in this story, but it hasn't rained in over three years. But then after all of this, in verse Verse 42 to 45, the rain falls. Verse 41, Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up and eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. Now again, this is one of them deals. God had told him to do that. God had said, you go find the king and you tell him it's going to rain. So in verse 41, Elijah says, hey king, it's going to rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Because see, sometimes, sometimes God has you step out and say something. And then you're like, now, Lord, if you don't do this, this is going to be really bad. Right? And he just said to the king, it hadn't rained in three years, it's going to rain. So you know what he did? He did what we should do. Okay, Lord, I did what you told me to do. Now I need you to do what only you can. He begins to pray and ask God to send the rain. And if you start reading these verses, the Bible said 
that Ahab went to eat and drink and Elijah cast himself down, verse 43, and he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. Boy, you ever pray and it seems like nothing. That happens. And he said, go again. And he did it seven times. There's, a lesson, there's another message there. I don't have time to preach tonight. Verse 44. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. Now I'm just going to say something to you here. I'm going to confess a little something. If I was Elijah and it hadn't rained in all these years and I've already stuck my neck out and told the king it's getting ready to rain and this guy's gone seven times to look and seen nothing, seen nothing, seen nothing and finally says, Elijah, I think I saw something. Oh, what'd you see? Well, well, I saw a cloud about the size of a man's hand. I think I would have said, I'm going to keep praying. Go look and see if there's a bigger cloud. <laughs> Elijah had a lot more faith than I have right here. He says about the size of a man's hand. And he said, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down that the rain stop thee not. You know, when we're asking God for something and we see a little glimmer of hope, we need to run with that. We need to get excited about that and let him stir our heart. And that's what he does here. And he tells him, you better prepare your chariot and don't let the rain stop you. Well, it hadn't rained yet, but in verse 45, it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And so I said that there are three things in this chapter where God is trying to reestablish. He's flexing in front of the eyes of man and he sends the fire the fire falls and they begin to shout the Lord he is the God and then the prophets fall and that's the revival the people get up and begin to work and do the work of the Lord but then the rains fall I call this the reward see God blesses the revival with the refreshing and in so doing he has allowed the land to see now think about this he has allowed the land to see that he alone is the God of heaven hey in the same few hours he has sent fire from heaven and now rain from heaven God was flexing is what he was doing. You know why? He was provoked. He looked down and listen, and God, I believe, gets bothered every now and then when the world forgets who he is. They forget how powerful he is, how mighty he is. Let me ask you this. Wonder how frustrated he gets when his own children forget who he is. Wonder what he feels when he looks down upon us. And in looking at our hearts and our faith and sometimes our lack of faith and our fear and all that, I wonder if sometimes he thinks, wait a minute, why are you feeling like that? Don't you know who I am? I'm your heavenly father and I'm the God of the universe. And I, I want God to look down and see me and me still know who he is and know what he can do. I don't want him to feel provoked when looking at me, but I know this, he looks at this world today and they don't know who he is. And I wonder if there are times that God looks down as he's done in these Bible situations and decides he needs to show himself again. Now listen, in these moments where God flexes, he often uses a vessel. In 1 Samuel 17, it was little David. In uh, Mount Carmel, it was Elijah. Do you know in Egypt, he sang about Egypt, getting me out of Egypt, but not Egypt out of me. In that story of Egypt, you know, God was once again trying to show the world. The Bible said this. God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Listen to what he said. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. You know what history tells us? History tells us that the Egyptians considered Pharaoh a god. That they looked at their Pharaohs like they were gods. 
And now God's looking down and he said, hey, wait a minute. Listen, buddy, you're not God. I'm God. And those are my people. And listen, God could have just touched Pharaoh's heart. Do you understand that? He could have touched Pharaoh's heart. And the very first time they asked to go, Pharaoh could have said, yeah, go ahead. No problem. God could have done that. I believe that's what God did in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a slave. He was a prisoner of war, if you will. He was serving in that king's palace. And then the king sees him sad one day. And he says, I've never before seen you sad in my presence. Said he'd never before been sad in his presence. And he says, what's wrong with you? And very quickly, uh, Nehemiah prays. It says, I prayed to my God. That was one of those real quick, oh Lord, help me prayers. Because then it says immediately he speaks to the king. You know what he says to that king? He says, my city back home, the gates are down and the walls are burned. And he said, and it's a reproach to our God. They start having this discussion and this slave, this prisoner of war, this servant, he starts asking some pretty hard things. He says, king, would you be willing to let me leave for a while? Oh, I'll come back. Well, first of all, what, what prisoner of war will come back if you let him leave? I'll come back. And that king says, yeah, I'll let you do that. Well, then he says, um, well, if on my way somebody catches me from some of these other lands, they'll know I'm an escaped prisoner from here. They'll kill me themselves. Would you care to write me a letter saying that you've given me permission to do this? And the king says, yeah, I'll do that. And then he says, I don't know if we've got any money back home. Um, we've got to rebuild the walls and the gates. Would you, uh, would you, would you care to pay for it? You know what, how many of y'all know what he says? Yeah, I'll do that. Can you imagine the conversation with his wife that night? The king and his wife. Well, how'd it go today? Well, I let Nehemiah leave. You did what? Yeah, he's going to go back to his, uh, to his place there, and they're going to rebuild it. And, and I wrote him a letter to protect him. And Oh, by the way, I gave him all the stuff to pay for it. Can you imagine her saying, what were you thinking? Can you imagine him saying, I don't know? Because those are not the right answers. Those are not logical answers to that situation. Let me tell you what I believe. Here's what Nehemiah said about it later. He said, I told him about the good hand of my God. See, Nehemiah understood it. Y'all know what a bobblehead is? Those little things, they got a little, little spring in their neck and they put them in the car. That's what was going on with the king. God just kept thumping him on the head and his little head just kept going yes, like that. Nehemiah said, can I leave? Yes. Hey, will you pay for it? Yes. And that night the king's going, what in the world happened? I'll tell you what happened. The good hand of my God. That's what Nehemiah called it. And that's what, listen, God could have done that to Pharaoh, couldn't he? The very first time, couldn't God have said to Pharaoh, let him go? And Pharaoh would have said, yes, y'all go with my blessings. But he didn't do it that way. You know why? He says particularly why. He said, I want to send all of these judgments. I want to send these plagues. He said, because I want the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. That's what God said. In other words, he said, I'm going to flex a little bit right here in Egypt because they think Pharaoh's God. And when it's all said and done and we're marching out of here, I want them to know that y'all are leaving because I am God in heaven. Now listen, in, in 1 Samuel 17, the vessel was little David. <coughs> in Mount Carmel, the vessel was Elijah. There in Egypt, the vessel was, of course, Moses and Aaron. Now here's the thought for the evening. I wonder if God wanted to show himself mighty to the world in 2022. What if God decided he wanted to show himself mighty again? He just wanted to remind some people somewhere. What if he wanted to, what if he wanted to remind this country? If your country is like our country, a lot of people have forgotten who God is. I would say he's provoked by my country. What if he wanted to show himself to a group of them in a certain city? What if he wanted to show the ones in, in my city? 
Here would be the question. Would he find a vessel he could use? Would he find a little David that he could use to show himself mighty? Would he find an Elijah uh, that could be used in such a way that when it's all said and done, nobody's bragging on Elijah. They're just saying the Lord, he is the God. Could he find a Moses and Aaron? Moses, the meekest man, the Bible said, in the world. Could he find a Moses and an Aaron that when they're walking out, the Egyptians are not talking about Moses. They're talking about their God. Listen, there's two things they must be. If you're going to be the kind of vessel that God can flex through, the kind where God could show himself mighty in such a way that people walk away saying he's something, you're going to have to, first of all, it's going to have to require you to be modest. There'll have to be humility. See, it has to be about God getting the glory. In Elijah's prayer, do you know what he says in his prayer that makes the fire fall? He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. Listen to what he says here. <coughs> Excuse me. And that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. That's it. That was the prayer. You notice what he said? He said, Lord, I want you to show them that you're God and I want all of them to know that none of this was me. None of this was my idea, this was not my plan, that this was all your plan, and I want them to be praising you. That was his prayer. You see the humility of Elijah, and that he didn't want them shouting about how great a prophet he was. Hey, he didn't want them saying what a great prayer warrior he was. He wanted them to know that there's a God in heaven that loves them, and that is all powerful, and that cares about what they think of him. There has to be a measure of humility. They must be modest. It has to be about God's plan and God's power. It can cannot be some prayer that's going to benefit me and my life. I'm talking about a situation that will magnify the Lord and his power. Amen. They must be modest. Secondly, they must be courageous. I'm almost finished. Stay with me now. In these God-flexing moments, the vessel will have to be willing to step out in faith. Sometimes in a bold, courageous, maybe dynamic way. Think of these three examples I've mentioned in the Word of God. You think about Elijah's contest. I mean, that's a pretty big deal to just step up and say, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and the God that sends fire from heaven, he's the one. That takes a little faith, wouldn't you say? One against 850. We'll just pray, and the God that sends, that was a courageous step of faith. How about little David? He's coming out against this great champion. Everybody he's talked to said, you can't do this. You're just a boy, and he's a warrior from his, from his youth. You can't do this. You can't do this. And he's just running out there. And I know he was stirred up and I know he was excited. But listen, you have to understand there had to be some fear down on the inside. But that courage pushed him to go on. Hey, he remembered that lion and that bear and how God had given him the victory. And he said, God will give me the victory today. What courage in that young man. How about Moses walking into the throne of the most powerful man in the world and saying, hey, God sent me to tell you, you better let his people go. That takes some courage, doesn't it? So these vessels, when God wants to show himself, they've got to be humble. There's got to be modest, modesty in them, and there's got to be courageousness in them. I'll tell you a story, and whoever's going to come to the piano, let them go ahead and come if they would. Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a young Chinese Christian who became very passionate about the things of God at a young age. And shortly after he even got saved, he began to preach and started doing evangelistic outreaches, and God was using him. Early in the 1920s, there in China, he had hooked up with a lot of other young Christians, and God was using them and blessing them. And they had been serving and doing things together, and then one day he got a surprise that his 
his friends, his brethren, they came to him and they said, we can no longer minister with you, Watchman Nee. Broken hearted, he didn't understand. And what it turned out to be was that the Chinese government had already begun to place pressure on the Christians. And they were starting to pressure the Christians to compromise their faith. And these brethren, they, here's what they knew. Here's what they said. When the Chinese government started saying, now look, we'll let you do some things, but you're going to have to compromise and this and this. And here's what they thought. Watchman's never going to do that. They knew Watchman Nee would never compromise. And so here's what they decided. They decided it's going to be easier on us if we just don't work with you. And his friends in the ministry cut him off. Heartbroken. He travels back to a different part of the land, a little closer to where he grew up and very discouraged, uh, dealing maybe borderline depression. But God brought an old friend to him. The old friend's name was Faithful Luke. That's what they called him. And Faithful Luke come to visit him. They began to talk and Watchman shared with him the burden of his heart and what had happened. They began to pray. And the book that I read said after a time of fervent prayer, they were both assured that God wanted them to, quote, leave the problem with me and go and preach the good news. And so Watchman's heart was encouraged a little with this friend and they're praying together. And they just decided they're going to go on and preach the gospel to people as best they can. About that same time, another friend of Faithful Luke reached out to him with a letter. And it was a young lady who was working as a midwife uh, in, in, a, in a city called Miwai, which was off a, on a small island off the coast of China. And she had sent word to Faithful Luke and she said, we need somebody to come here and preach the gospel in this pagan village. There's nobody here doing it. Watch my knee and, and uh, Faithful Luke had just decided God wanted them just to go on and preach the gospel. They thought this is a perfect opportunity. They got five other young evangelists to go with them, seven of them total. They go down to the city of Miwai and, and they spend a whole week, it said they spent a whole week intensely preaching the gospel and witnessing, just laboring for the Lord. It said they saw no converts, nobody got saved. One source said this, it wasn't like the people were rude to them. It wasn't like they were mean to them. It was as if they just didn't even hear them. Like they, they just simply ignored them. The youngest member of their group, his name was Coaching Lee. Coaching Lee was fired up and he was getting frustrated with the disinterest of the people in what they were preaching. So one day he just cries out to the crowd, what's wrong with you? Why don't you believe? And when he said that, somebody answered from the crowd. And they said, oh, we do believe. We believe in our great king, Taiwong. He never fails us. Well, Coach Ying Lee had never heard of this Taiwong. And so he began to question them about it. And here's what he learned. He said that he learned that every year on January the 11th, that this city held an elaborate festival of worship for this Taiwong. Said they would go into the temple and they would carry out this massive statue of him and they would carry him up and down the streets and they would have feasts and they would have festivals and they would just worship all day on January the 11th. They said that uh, they'd been doing that for 286 years. And they said for all of those years, Taiwan had always provided them with beautiful weather on January the 11th. They said, as a matter of fact, it hadn't rained on January the 11th in over 300 years. Well, Coach Ying Lee, the young preacher boy, that fired him up. He said, that's it. He said, then I promise you that our God, who is the true God, will make it rain on the 11th. The crowd took him up on his challenge and said, all right, say no more. If it rains on the 11th, then your Jesus is indeed God and we will be ready to hear him. Now, Watchman Nee was not there when this young guy was doing all this. He was preaching in another part of the city. 
word got to him. And the story says that Watchman was a little frustrated with the young preacher, with his brashness, and said he was a little disheartened and even tempted to rebuke the young man for being so rash. It said the 11th was just two days away. Watchman Nee was about to rebuke that boy, but instead he stopped and prayed first. And here's what he prayed. Lord, have we taken this too far? Should we leave this village lest your name be maligned? I'm going to be honest with you. That's probably how I would have thought. I'm afraid that's how I would have thought. Oh, man, what, what are you doing? What are you? It's two days. What if it rains? Come on, and some of you would some of you agree that might be the fear in your heart. The watchman said, Lord, have we, have we taken this too far? And are we gonna hurt your name? And he said that when he prayed that, that immediately deep within his heart came the words of 2 Kings 2:14. And here's what that says: Where he is the Lord God of Elijah. Well, you know, Elijah's the one that prayed. It hadn't rained in three years, and he prayed and the rain fell. Watchman Nee said that when he had that verse rise up in his heart, that he felt assured that God had taken the challenge. And he said that he then took it out himself. They began, these guys began to go out on the street. And for those two days, they promoted the challenge. They said, on the 11th, our God, the Lord Jesus, is going to make it rain to show that he is the one true God. The morning of the 11th came. When they got up, there was a cloudless sky. The story said that Watchman Nee saw villagers going about their business with unusual speed, making preparations for the pagan festivities to come. He went down to meet with the others for breakfast, and I thought this was a funny statement. It said tension was in the air among the seven evangelists. I thought, I guess so. It's the day, and there's no cloud in the sky. They gather for breakfast, and Watchman Nee says, let's pray. And he prays this prayer. Father... Please accept our prayer as a gentle reminder that you promised to answer the challenge of this demon God today. And even though not a cloud appears in the sky, we trust in your promise. The story said before he could say amen, raindrops could be heard striking the roof. It said the people of the village persisted, choosing to simply ignore the rain. They hurriedly hoisted the heavy idol onto its platform. They began to carry him down the slippery streets. It said as they walked, they could be heard saying, Taiwong, stop this rain and defeat this Jesus. It said about that time, the skies opened and the rain began to pour. It said the rain fell so hard and so fast that flash flood ravines began to develop uh, there in the city. It said before long the water reached the level of most of their porches. Water rushed down the streets where they were carrying Taiwan. And as determined and as stubborn as they were to hold up their silent and stiff God, the water was too much. And one of the men slipped and down came the statue, crashing onto the street, breaking its head and its left arm. It said that Watchman Nee and his brethren laughed and rejoiced. They said it was a miracle and God had bared his arm and showed himself strong. Now listen, those priests, they didn't give up easily. They rushed their God into a home for repairs. Can we just stop and say, aren't you glad you don't have to rush your God into the house and fix him? Say amen right there. He fixes us. They rushed him into a home for repairs and it said uh, after some time they emerged with the statue fixed and with some important news. 
They made a proclamation that the city had gotten the date wrong and that the celebrations were to be held on the 14th at 6 o'clock, not on the 11th. Watchman Nee knew this challenge was no match for our God. And he prayed, Lord, then give us good weather until that very hour, for there is much to do. It said, and for the next three and a half days, those seven evangelists preached with great boldness on the street corners and in marketplaces and more than 30 villagers trusted Christ as their Savior. And it said, and the weather said it was gorgeous on all of those days. That is, up until six o'clock on the 14th of January, at which time another deluge struck the city. And the floodwaters of that day broke Taiwan's bondage on those people. History says, and I quote, scores of people came to know Christ in saving faith and a strong New Testament church was born on that island in that hour. Now listen, that ought to stir you a little on the inside. That was not in the Bible days. That was the 1920s, 1930s. You know what that was? That was God. That was God looking down at a little island that had been worshiping the wrong thing and they thought he was God and God decided, no, it's time for me to show them who I am. And God flexed in that moment and he got the glory. Now here it is. Do you believe God can still do that kind of stuff today? Yes, sure. You know, 90 years ago he flexed. Brother Pipe and those people and they founded a church. I wonder if there was anybody that thought that wasn't a good idea. Wonder if there was anybody that thought, man, a, a Baptist church is not going to work here and in this place. And, and God said, watch this. 40 years ago, 42 years ago, God flexed again with Brother Strachan. Is that how you say his name? Built this building in the middle of this field. Can you imagine as people were driving up and down the road seeing that building go up? And Hey, what's that? What's that? That's a church. That's the Baptist. And how, how there were probably skeptics and scoffers. But God was saying, watch this. Watch this. He was flexing. It's a testimony to God. Yes, people were here. People played a part. There were vessels. But the testimony is to God. That for 90 years, God has said, I am here. Now listen to me. What if God wanted to do something again here in Simcoe? I'm not talking about some little thing. What if he wanted to flex again? What if he spoke it into the heart of the preacher? Would you be a vessel he could work through? Would you be one that could believe? Would you be one that could have enough humility that it didn't have to be about you at all? Would you be one that might have enough courage to say, Preacher, listen, if you think God wants us to do it, let's do it. Because I believe God still cares that people know who He is. And that's the prayer tonight. We've been looking back. But Jesus hadn't come yet. Which means He's not done. And I wonder if you would simply be willing to pray this tonight. Lord, make me the kind of vessel that if, if, you can't force these things. Elijah can't just make this contest happen. David can't just decide he's going to go kill a giant. Moses and Aaron cannot just march into Pharaoh's uh, throne room of their own accord. No, it's God. It's got to be God. But if, I wonder if you'd be willing to say this, God, if 
you wanted to flex again in this place, in this city. I want you to make me the kind of vessel that you could work through. That's all. You're not committing to be Elijah. You're just, are you willing to say, God, if you wanted to do something, something amazing so that, listen, so that even the enemies of God would have to back up and say, what hath God wrought? Wonder if you'd be willing to just say, Lord, if you want to do something like that, make me the kind of vessel that you could use. Wonder if you'd be willing to pray that tonight. Let's all stand. Heads are bowed and she's playing. Would you be willing to come and say, Lord, if you're gonna, if you're gonna give us another 30 years, or if you're gonna give us another 50 years, or if you're gonna give us another 90 years, or Lord, whatever you're gonna do here at this place, if you want to show yourself mighty, Lord, I want to be the kind of vessel that you can work through. Some are coming. How about you? Hey, listen, those videos, it was not just the pastors. The vision was in the heart of the pastors, but the pastors were given people. God gave them people that believe. You say, I just don't know if I have that kind of courage. Then you can pray like that man did in the Bible when he came to Jesus. And Jesus said, if thou believest. And here's what he said. I believe, help thou mine unbelief. You can pray that. God's not offended by that prayer. Maybe you come tonight and say, Lord, if you want to do something amazing again, and if you wanted to maybe do it around here, Give me the faith to believe that you can and make me the kind of vessel that you could work through. How about you? Why don't you come and just tell God you're willing if he so chooses.